And I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Welcome back, Shindiggers. Over our next three episodes, Donna continues to read from Chapter 7, Wishing and Hoping. Did you know that was the first song she sang on a little show called Shindig? Well, in this episode, Donna finishes up with Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars tour and is straight onto the set of the highest rated musical program of the 1964-65 television season. Along the way, you'll hear some vintage sounds from the set, including a performance from The Beatles. Go, Donna. As for my association with Dick Clark, we did so much Dr. Pepper work together, American Bandstand, as well as a great venue for me to promote my records. Dick and I also starred in an annual convention for all the national bottlers for Dr. Pepper. There was a crazed director who shall be anonymous, a real Warner Baxter a la 42nd Street type assigned to direct the event. His approach with Dick and me was to rehearse us tirelessly for three days. We had a script and I had songs to perform, which he felt would be delivered best if we were sleep deprived. The notion of interpreting show business in an abusive way appealed to the powers that be enough for them to invite him back and repeat this torture four years in a row. It blew my mind to witness Dick Clark comply with the ridiculous, absurd demands of this man. Dick and I were asked to rehearse until four o'clock in the morning, the night before the show. The director told us we would do our best after our adrenaline kicked in, and so literally Dick and I would end up falling asleep on a backstage floor. Being a minor, you'd think that at least Maury would speak up in my defense, but nope. No one stood up for me or my best interest. There was one focus, money. As long as I cooperated and didn't complain, all was well. No one ever considered my welfare, and why the hell did Dick allow it? Many years after I retired, I went to visit him. Dick greeted me with open arms. Those are my Sedona days. I had just fallen in love with Sedona and written a song about it. I had many ambitions to help to build an amphitheater there and had become affiliated with an organization called the Sedona Arts Center. Lucy Banks, the director of the center, spearheaded a project and supported my efforts to develop 14 acres of land they owned. I brought an acoustical engineer who designed Wolf Trap and the Hollywood Bowl to walk the property. In his opinion, it was acoustically correct for an amphitheater, a virtual bowl crafted by Mother Nature, just like the Greeks 3,000 years ago. I had the movers and the shakers in Sedona supporting my efforts, well, Dick Clark patiently listened to my song, a cappella. Sedona was unknown to the likes of Dick Clark in the early 80s when this took place. Hollywood had not discovered Sedona. Well, rediscovered it is more like it. John Ford made Stagecoach, starring John Wayne there in 1939. Even Elvis shot a movie there, Stay Away Joe, in the 60s. After I finished my song and spiel about the amphitheater, Dick said, don't worry your pretty little head over it and dismiss me. My heart sank. I had a new awareness that I was dealing with yet another patriarchal authority who judged me 
as only a female, good for singing, looking cute, pretty, but never to be taken seriously as an entrepreneur. Even though his kindness was ever-present, accepting my calls when I came to say hello after I moved to Hawaii and just felt compelled to stay connected, there was a distance. Then the phone rang in Dick Clark's office in Burbank. He went over to his desk to take the call. A storm had ripped through his house in Malibu, disturbing his gardens. I saw the concern on his face, and then he looked up at me with dark, saddened eyes. The forever young Dick Clark showed me his other side. He hung up, hugged me, goodbye. Why was I on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars tour? Once again, I was an anomaly. I was the featured guest among all the hit makers as the Dr. Pepper girl. I did not have the awareness to question why I was on that tour singing standards like Kansas City and Bill Bailey. Instead, I could have promoted a surf rock music theme, including Muscle Bustle and Love's a Secret Weapon. Dick introduced me as one of the stars of the beach party movies and a Mouseketeer. I could hear the excitement build in the audience night after night, anticipating the appearance of Annette. Each time I walked out on the stage, I felt an air of disappointment coming from the crowd when their expectations were faulted. And it was only me. If only Dr. Pepper my manager dad, and I would have strategized appropriately and assisted my ability to satisfy an audience, I worked very hard to gain a little applause and could only justify any satisfaction by putting forth my best effort. No one took the time or empathized, especially my dad. Everyone had their own agenda, and I would have to be a survivor. Surviving in this medium was a struggle, and struggle did not produce the clarity I needed to present myself authentically. If only I knew my role as Dr. Peppergrill was my hit. Dick could have sensationalized that fact. Hell, Dr. Pepper provided all the soft drinks at the concerts. All he would have to say is, Everyone, raise your glass or bottle of Dr. Pepper to the one and only... Dr. Pepper Girl. I could have sung my jingle and then go on to tell how I was in the beach party movies with Annette and Frankie. But in hindsight, I can only be honest with myself. We all would want to change mistakes we made or those blunders that happened to us. I was kind of thrown into situations to sink or swim and did the best I could under the circumstances because I was trying to please everybody. I had a need for acceptance because of my deep feeling that I really didn't belong to my family and the extension of those feelings were carried into this situation. I did whatever I could to please everyone but myself. This kind of awareness is like living in a fog. My agreement to be on the Caravan of Stars tour for 22 days was cut short. On the 21st day, I folded. A fever raged through me, sending me to bed. My nature is to be very analytical, and so I feel that subliminally I was asking my dad to give me attention that showed he cared about my well-being. It took for me to collapse with a high fever for him to show the some compassion instead of persevering with the show-must-go-on attitude. I remember lying on an ugly motel bed, feeling so sick and Maury pacing. There was nothing he could do, no Dr. Kemp to call, and pump me up with antibiotics to keep me going. So he surrendered, 
notified the tour manager that I would not be there the final night. He patted my back and told me that I could rest and we would go home tomorrow. Just a couple of nights before, there was a rap party where Lala had given me her stage dress to wear when all the acts switched roles and sang other people's songs. I wore her white sequin mini dress and sang Da Do Run Run. <laughs> One of the rip cords got so smashed he had to be carried out kicking and screaming. That wasn't Richie. Fortunately, my resilience kicked in because I was to report to Shindig immediately after returning that morning at 11 a.m. I showed up for rehearsal at 4 p.m. that same day on August 8th, according to my diary. From that get-go, Jack Good established an atmosphere of relaxation and fun. Maury hovered close by. Jack Good introduced me to a group of guys who were called the Wellingtons. He said they'd be singing background. Then he walked me over to where Darlene Love was standing with her backup vocal trio, The Blossoms. I had met Darlene before several times when she sang background on my records. After the introductions, Jack Good sat down and talked to me. Talked to me? What? Someone's considering my opinion or willing to discuss something with me? This is a first. He said, you mentioned before you liked Dusty Springfield in his British accent. We, meaning the director and I, want you to sing her song, Wishing and Hoping. Will you do it? Nobody had approached me in this democratic manner before. Yes, of course, I answered happily. At a rehearsal the next day, it was like Jack Good had tapped into the L.A. music scene that I had started when I was 14. In addition to the Wellingtons and the Blossoms, the Righteous Brothers, whom I had known before as well, were there. Leon Russell had worked on my records, and he was playing piano in the Shindig Band. And I had met James Burton, the lead guitarist, when I was eight years old, and we did a live radio show, Squeakin' Deacon. Even Glenn Campbell was there. Heck, I knew him since I was 14. I was feeling right at home, even though an invisible veil separated me from ever really socializing. After all, I was still a minor, and Maury was always my clinging shadow. On little Stephen Van Zandt's radio show, Underground Garage, in the year 2007, he dedicated a part of his show to Shindig and its creator, Jack Good. The show began with an announcer's voice saying, It's 8.30, and that's time to swing with Shindig. Here's a bright new showcase for the big beat dance music that's moved from America to every corner of the world. Today in the Peppermint Lounge, Buckingham Palace, or a dance pavilion in Hong Kong, the beat's the same. If you're 6 or 96, you'll get big kicks on Shindig. We then hear little Stephen's voice begin to tell the story of Shindig. A British producer and Shakespeare freak named Jack Good put the first rock and roll TV series on in England, 1957, called Six Five Special. 
A year later, he did a show called Oh Boy, which was a series where he developed a never-seen-before fast-paced style, which included constantly moving cameras and rapid, unexpected smash-cut editing, techniques MTV would be known for 20 years later. Meanwhile, American TV still had Perry Como and Lawrence Welk putting everybody to sleep. Ten years later, Welk's bubble machine would have been appreciated, but at the time, nobody was doing drugs yet. Encouraged by Eddie Cochran's former girlfriend, Sharon Sheely, Jack Good moved to the States in 1963 to try and get a TV show on in America. With his last bit of money, they did a pilot called Young America Swings the World. The networks rejected it, saying it was too fast-paced and nobody would get it in the Midwest. Sharon Sheely's new husband, DJ Jimmy O'Neill, who had hosted the pilot, didn't want to give up so easily, so he gave it to his friend Chuck Barris to see what he could do with it. Yes, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Palisades Park, Chuck Barris. Chuck loved it and gave it to his new best friends at ABC who were developing his soon-to-be hit show, The Dating Game, the world's first reality TV show, if we don't count Queen for a day. In their wisdom, ABC decided to make it a country show and made a pilot hosted by Roy Clark and renamed it Shindig. It was so bad, they turned it back into a rock show, but kept the country name. Which made no sense at all, but showed the level of commitment by the Executive Brain Trust over at ABC. They reluctantly put it on September 16, 1964, just to keep Chuck Barris happy. But were never into it. They may not have been into it, but the audience was. The mix of performers was impressive from the start. British Invasion legends mixed with Motown stars and the two house bands, the Shindiggers, later changed to the Shindogs, and the Ray Pullman Band had the hippest musicians around at the time, including James Burton, Leon Russell, Delaney Bramlett, and various members of Phil Spector's Wrecking Crew, like Jim Horn and Larry Nectel. Darlene Love and Billy Preston were regulars, and occasionally an ABC executive would suggest the show was getting too black. Jack Good would tell them, just put it in a memo which, of course, they never did. Jack dealt with every detail on his shows, the songs, the band's clothes, even their expressions and their moves. Good had previously orchestrated Eddie Cochran's tough rockabilly image and early on molded Cliff Richard to be the English Elvis, among other Svengali-like strokes. Meanwhile, director Rita Gillespie kept things moving at a frenetic pace, sometimes cutting to the rhythm of the song, sometimes against it. The show was an immediate hit, but the network had undersold it, so they never made much money from it. After a year of showcasing one classic rock and roll performance after another, but making little profit, ABC started questioning Jack Good on everything he did, and he quit. His last show was June 30th, 1965. All the master tapes were recorded over, but the good news is that every show survived as a kinescope which is a video-to-film transfer done by shooting a TV monitor with a 16mm camera. Ultimately, as far as ABC was concerned, it was let's get out while the getting's good. Let's catch the next pop culture trend. They traded Beatlemania for Batman. Oh, and by the way, the show that was recorded over all the Shindig Master Tapes was The Dating Game. Shindig! How ironic that I was a part of Shindig that became Batman and 
evolved into the dating game. My persona morphed from one show to another to another. Stage three at ABC was a theater seating 300 people in an audience with an extremely generous stage. The size of it accommodated risers for dancers, all the musicians in the band, and the complete cast. It was more like a Broadway theater in Hollywood with cameras. Dressed in red with a ribbon in my hair, I walked down stage to hit my mark. Those TV cameras were my friends. The little red light that would go on was my direct contact with the audience. I think it captured my true essence. The pre-recorded track emulated the original record, a haunting horn intro, and then I sang live, wishing and hoping. especially with live performances. I never thought to inquire what kind of microphone was used on set, but I have to say it was the best live sound I ever heard. Jimmy O'Neill, one of the top 40 DJs in L.A., was selected to be the host. Sam Cooke was the star of Shindig's debut on ABC television on September 16th. In the same week, Peyton Place, Bewitched, and The Addams Family premiered. Little did we know that only a few months later he would be shot dead at only 33 years old. To me, Sam symbolized exactly what was going on in America. He took his music from the deep south and crossed over to the white world. His clean-cut appearance would become a role model for Marvin Gaye and other R&B artists. The first show's rating went through the roof. about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about a science book, don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you, and I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. It's been a long, 
change gonna come Oh, yes it will It's been too hard living But I'm afraid to die For the second show that I was on, I was paired with Bobby Sherman to sing a duet. Bobby and I performed regularly together on the show. He was becoming a teen idol. Jack Good chose a song called Casting My Spell on You for us to sing in the midst of dry ice smoke. It was hard not to choke amidst the gas that was being blown from the dry ice machine, but the bottom line is that the effect was perfect for the song. Wouldn't you agree? After I recorded my Beach Blanket Bingo album, Bobby and I climbed up on a tandem bike for me to sing Cycle Set. What was he doing behind me? I'll never tell. We're gonna Temple of Shindig shows was unlike anything I had ever experienced live. No delays, no lags, always upbeat in one act after another. Jack Good, who had originally launched the show in his native England, had an enthusiasm and verve for music, a combination of his love for American music and the cultural aspect of its origin, based on Southern slavery blues. It was the birth of integrating the new British sounds, Jack always showcased acts like the Rolling Stones, Marianne Faithful, the Dave Clark Five, the Kinks, Chad and Jeremy. On a live show from London early on in the season, the Beatles sang Kansas City, hey, 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 I'm a loser, and boys. Four great guys we've enjoyed working with so much here in England tonight, ladies and gentlemen. The entertainment phenomenon of the century. The Beatles!
Thanks for listening and stick around for our next episodes as we continue to chart the course of TV's pioneering rock and roll sensation. Goodbye. Yes,